This is the Power of Genetics podcast. In each episode, I'll be interviewing successful practitioners and impactful thought leaders in the world of health and performance. They will share their journey, their insights, and their best advice for us all. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe. Let's begin with today's episode. A big welcome today to the Power of Genetics podcast to Dr. Austin Pilmato, who I have been waiting for a very long time to speak with, but I'm no doubt that it's going to be absolutely worth it. So a big welcome to you, Austin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we were able to make this happen. So I um, obviously have been hearing your name for quite a while, quite many years, and then Probably about a year ago, I was lucky enough to hear you present at the PLMI um, conference in Seattle, and I was like blown away. I was like, this is something different. This is something unique that I've really never heard before. And then since then, I've become a little bit of a groupie, following you on social media, and we'll talk about Costco and your social media, because that's one of the things that makes me smile the most, um, and has got me shopping for certain items at Costco. Um, but also just, you know, you bring a really unique and kind of unusual and refreshing thought to the way we do medicine and healthcare. So I'm I'm very excited to talk with you today. And I've always feel like it's it's probably more apt if you introduce yourself in terms of who maybe who you are now, um, what role you're playing now, but then um I would love to go back to the beginning. I'm not gonna prompt anything about who you are, where you came from, but would really love to hear your story. Sure. Uh, well, you said my name, Austin Perlmutter. I mean, I don't want to go directly into philosophy and the question of who who I am, what I am. But, you know, I think as of now, I'm best known as, I guess, an internal medicine doctor and a New York Times bestseller of a book called Brainwash, which I co-authored with my dad, David Perlmutter. And... The, the nuts and bolts of my core bio would be that I attended an allopathic United States med school where I got my MD degree at University of Miami. I did an internal medicine residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. And over that period, I was able to do some coursework through the Institute for Functional Medicine. They had a program at the University of Miami called ICAMP. Um, but I mean, even before that, I had been exposed to, I guess, integrative modalities since I was a kid. Uh, I grew up in a house in which my father, David Perlmutter, um, had uh, himself a bit of a departure from conventional medicine. Um, his father, my grandfather, was a well-established neurosurgeon in Florida in a time where there just were not that many neurosurgeons. So he got all the prestige and kind of acclaim that comes with being a neurosurgeon and in an era in which those jobs received far more prestige than they do even now. So my dad um, initially was going into neurosurgery, switched into neurology, realized for himself that it wasn't doing conventional neurology, wasn't a good fit, and became interested in integrative modalities, was one of kind of the earliest people in the realm of integrative or functional neurology. Um, so that was that transition was really happening while I was a kid. And so I saw him move from what is still kind of the standard approach to many of these medical jobs, uh, him waking up at 2 a.m. to go on call in the hospital, seeing patients with these conditions. I mean, in his case, a lot of strokes, a lot of dementia, um, 
and then him getting burned out on the idea that there was really nothing being done to prevent these conditions and sort of transitioning over the course of many years into a preventive neurology uh, realm. So all of that kind of informed my trajectory into or not into medicine. Um, I can talk about that in a minute, but that's that's kind of the the soup, the milieu in which I was was raised as far as kind of the medical background. So we're hitting, I guess, the bookends. Uh, kid growing up in a household with medicine and integrative techniques, and now where I'm, again, an internal medicine doctor, I would say someone who believes in, educates on integrative modalities. Um, some other things I'm up to now just to, to complete that bookend. Uh, research, education, a little bit of investment in the health space, and really my kind of goal overall now has transitioned away from one-to-one -one patient care and management of chronic disease to doing my best to help people get stuckness out of their brains and bodies by large-scale educational techniques. Uh, podcast would be one example, but getting a chance to educate hopefully millions of people around the world on things that are science-based to help us get our brains and our bodies unstuck. Okay, that, that is fantastic. And I do want to come back to stuckness because I just, I love the word and the way you use it. So I do want to talk a little bit more about it. But I want to go back. Here's a question that may uh, probably have been asked. Is that, was there ever a time that you would have not become a doctor? Yeah, up until my junior year of college, my plan was to become a young adult fiction author. I was an English major and I did pre-med on the side because I guess that was my backup plan. And there was still a piece of me that I guess never fully acknowledged that I would write that off. But my, yeah, my, my overall goal was to become a, uh, a fiction writer uh, in college up until the point that two things happened. Um, one was the uh, kind of cost benefit analysis to going into that field at the time. And a couple of uh real conversations with my mentors in college who were giving me a sense as to what that looked like uh, for the next decades. And then, you know, part of this, which was, I always loved science and I like the idea of science being applied. And so, you know, th this may be a departure from what some guests, I'm guessing many guests on this podcast say, which is, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. And when I was three years old, I had this stethoscope on and my parents were so excited. I actually did not want to be a doctor for the majority of my educational life. And, you know, I, I really did enjoy med school. I really did enjoy residency. But I think maybe one of the, the things that is true is I have not pursued a conventional medical path in that I finished residency, decided to opt out of going directly into patient care decided to opt into a re-education on what are the kind of biochemical systems that are driving disease. And even though there is definitely overlap with what happens in a clinical setting where you're talking to a patient about their diabetes or their heart failure, um, the wall that I ran into in training was, first of all, conventional training, including in my case, the VA had very little interest in me creating educational uh, assets for their use. Um, they, all of these things are kind of these uh, giant ships with uh, very little steering capacity, as I see it. Um, but so part of it was not being able to do the education I wanted. And part of it was realizing that in order to develop preventive strategies at scale, it would be almost impossible to do that within the confines of a one-to-one -one patient to doctor interaction. So 
Um, that was one of the major drivers of me taking a bit of a gamble and saying, I want to do other things that led me to, I guess, where we are today, five, six years so later. The interesting, in thing, the interesting thing, Austin, is having done quite a, quite a few seasons now of this podcast is that the exception is those that work like were three years old and knew what they wanted to be doctors. Mm. And in fact, what I've seen is that there's like a, a common thread that flows through everyone that I've spoken to who's having a really big impact in health and healthcare is that they actually were like almost second career or if they weren't second career health healthcare, they pursued um, something else. So in your case, it was kind of literary um, so many were philosophy, art, and, and often what I've noticed is that the other pursuit that they usually were involved in was a more social liberal kind of humanities mm -hmm. direction, uh, but they somehow were triggered in some way to land up in healthcare. And so actually my hypothesis, also only mine, is that it's when these unique minds bring both the kind of social science together with the biological science together, is where we have the ability um, to really break through and challenge paradigms. And I actually started in architecture. So I had no desire to be a scientist, genetics, nutrition, none at all. I didn't even do science at school. Um, I did art and history and landed up doing architecture. And I think that there's something about it. So my next question, you know, segue into that is, what do you think um, with your, your um, passion for, for literary, for writing, um, what is what do you bring from that into the work that you're doing now? Right. It's a it's a great question. It's very interesting to hear about your other guests. You know, I do a ton of writing, actually. Turns out I do a lot, a lot of writing. I mean, as I said before, I wrote this book with my father um, that became a, a best-selling book, which is amazing, but also it was just an incredible experience to do that and to write. And so you know, I have a newsletter, I have a blog, I write a lot of copy, I help other people with their copy. I just like that. And I think what I really love about it is that we're at a place where all of the ideas are kind of out there for the most part. I mean, it doesn't mean people don't have new ideas, but there's new science coming out, all these other things. The, the challenge is to synthesize complexity into a form that is accessible to a person and meaningful to a person. And you can do that in a work of fiction by creating characters that are so engrossing that you can't turn them off. But that comes from a very careful study of what happens in the world and in essence, distilling down some of these things that are so subtle for, for many people and, and turning them into a character that jumps off the page. In the realm of science, you know, if you go to PubMed, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of articles in there uh, many of which are addressing the same things, but there's so much science and there is a massive divide between all of that information that is quite complex, kind of by definition, and what the average person is able to understand from it. And in that gap, what you have is uh, a filling in of the blank, much of which is either an incorrect uh, kind of interpretation of the data, a, sens a sensationalized interpretation of the data, or just complete ignorance of the data itself. And we're in a time, very interesting time, where uh, those who uh, kind of exist within the established uh, aristocracy of medical uh, education, and I'd say MDs are the uh, kind of prototypical example, um, 
feel as though because they know the science so well that if they just tell somebody about what they believe, what they think is right, that that is sufficient to change behavior. And that isn't true. I mean, objectively, it isn't true. We know that just telling people what to do doesn't change behavior. But on the other side of things, we have this growing population of people, influencers would be the correct term, who are able to convince other people to listen and to change what they do based on you know, largely opinion, anecdote, and sometimes completely uh, incorrect data. And so this is a strange thing, right? We have what we would argue is the real science, whatever that means, uh, in the uh, somewhere in this leather bound tome, you know, call that PubMed or whatever else, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine. And then on the other side, we have a 16 year old high schooler who uh, Googled gut health and is going to teach you about the four science-backed ways to use probiotic strains to enhance your gut health, right? And that's really interesting to me because what it means is we've kind of lost the story on both ends. Uh, the doctors and the medical establishment have lost the narrative in that they don't necessarily understand how human psychology works. And on the other end, these young influencers, I mean, or just influencers in general, are amazing at harnessing human psychological tricks, and yet may often be doing a bit of a disservice to society because they are incentivized to sensationalize rather than to actually elicit positive behavior change. So that's a, it's a long-winded way of saying this, but at the end of the day, all of us are storytelling, right? That is the, the idea behind this. And there are a couple of things that a great story would have as it relates to health. One is it would be factual right, as far as their science. One is it would be uh, useful to a person, meaning if they applied it, they would benefit. And the third is it would be interesting uh, or enjoyable to the person. And so often we find ourselves with the people on the one end of things, the scientists, the doctors, having things that are, are factual and would be useful if they were implemented, but not actually all that engaging and not psychologically sound. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have things that are psychologically incredibly uh, engaging, yet may not be factual and may not be useful. Sometimes they are useful, even if they're not factual, which is another thing. Um, so I see myself somewhere in this you know, nexus of trying to do the best I can to know what is scientifically accurate, but also leveraging what is real about how people actually process and interpret and uh, use data um, to guide their day-to-day -day decisions. So, you know, you and I both have this scenario where we have social media accounts and let's just be as, as explicit about this as we can. Instagram right now uh, is real based as far as the uh, attention gathering is biased towards short pieces of video content, 90 seconds or less. I will sometimes post content uh, on a relatively complex topic and try to give a couple of things about it. And people might sometimes message me or comment and say, oh, well, you didn't talk about this study from 1942, or you didn't mention the subset of people with IBS for whom this isn't relevant. And that is important. That's all important nuance. But the maybe bigger picture thing to understand is that we live in an age of fragmented attention. And if the goal, which mine is, uh, is to do the best I can to impact positively the most people I can. You have to understand that there are concessions to be made, ideally not factual concessions, but as it relates to the entirety of the story being told in any specific instance. So 
the nope. the answer is I'm still a storyteller. I've just transitioned the way that I do that from young adult fiction books to the medical sphere. Very well said. So um, thank you for that. And and actually, it's some of the points that I would have raised with you. So I, I have been following your social media, and I'm always interested in how how we how we present ourselves in social media. And um, I was I, I was actually joking with some very close friends of mine who were saying, you know, they, um, you know, set out in life to be a, a kind of early childhood teacher and they've landed up looking after accounts and being an accountant. And I was like, well, I set out to be a scientist and I land up doing social media reels. And, um, and, and that's my job. And well, a huge part of my job. And I, and I always kind of say, you know, that, um, it's not a natural space for us to be, and yet it's an important space for us to be in. And so I'm very interested in watching yours because I think you you have found a way to sit in that space where you're bringing the, the accuracy and the integrity of the science, but are actually extremely engaging. And the one thing about you that, um, I'm sure you know this about yourself, but I'll say anyway, is you're actually really funny. And, but in a kind of an English humor kind of way. So it's not in a, in like a, like a obvious funny joke way, but actually you have a very dry sense of humor. And if you watch enough of your um, social media, or if you're lucky enough to hear you speak on stage, you actually realize you've got this extremely, um, what this amazing wit that comes through in your social media. And so I think what you've done with that has been really interesting for me because you've also been able to bring it to a level and I know kind of the depth of your, your knowledge and intelligence, but bring it to a level where it's like, okay, let's talk about Costco. So, you know, I, until I saw your reels in Costco, I was like, I'm not going to go and buy my organic thing. I'm saying like, oh my God, awesome. This is amazing. And suddenly I have this other shopping list. So I, I, I think it's an interesting time for people like us where we find ourselves in a social media space, but almost reluctantly and yet trying to make the most of the space, which is probably yeah. saying the same that you said. Yeah, but, but that's it. I think all of us are trying to make sense of what to do next. And it's to try to just distill it down to one of the ways to look at this is we're always playing some sort of an, a game. You know, I, I don't mean that in kind of a, a, a trivial way. I mean, you're always playing some game, some some internal competition, some kind of you, you set your your OKRs or whatever you want to call it. But I try to look at it more from the game perspective because I think it keeps it a little bit more lighthearted when things go wrong. And so you're saying, ah, oh, just you know, this is part of the game. This is part of the experience. And um, th there was a time not too long ago, and that is almost certainly still the case for people who have been in um, in the scientific realm for a long time, which was you are wasting your time to be on social media that only real science is done or real science is done outside of that. Social media is just kind of trash. Um, we saw then the rise of med Twitter and we saw the rise of, in some cases, uh, kind of real scientific communication via social media and people collaborating via social media. And that was blown up in the context of the pandemic when people were looking for outlets to communicate with each other. Um, it was the case for a long time that medical education happened from the kind of uh, allopathic model behind the clinic door when you went in and sat next to your doctor and they delivered the information to you. That is still certainly the way that 
many people get their health information. But the the challenge is that it isn't working, right? And I don't mean this in the context of doctors aren't being helpful and the doctors aren't doing great things. What I mean is that with all the advent of new technologies and you know incredible uh, cancer detection and pharmaceuticals that target GLP-1 and everything else, humans on the whole are still getting sicker with preventive conditions. And at least in the last few years, the United States are dying earlier, right? So the data are going consistently in a way that is opposed to what we would expect if our interventions were working. So I think very reasonably, people ask this question of, what else can I do? Because if you do what is kind of presented, if you were going to, I don't know, just listen to what the US government or whoever else said is necessary for your health, sure, you would get the information on health prevention, exercise, eat a, a diet. We've moved past the food pyramid, thank goodness, but you know, yeah. eat a, a diet with these Little components, yeah. um, prioritize your sleep, whatever, the basics of lifestyle modification. And then it would say, make sure to see your doctor. And you go to see your doctor and you would get some preventive screening some of which is phenomenal, right? I mean, it's it's great to be able to detect certain cancers early. Um, it's great to know certain people have lipid issues and would benefit from more aggressive lifestyle modification and potentially pharmaceuticals. But the point to all of this is that system has led to, and I don't mean the system as far as the recommendations. I mean, that being kind of the totality of it, which is you give basic lifestyle advice and then you see a doctor when things go wrong a scenario in which a growing percentage of the global population, more than half, are experiencing issues with weight management, where at least one chronic disease is the outcome you should expect if you become an adult in the United States, where at least one pharmaceutical is what you should expect, where one in six people now um, needs a anti-psychiatric or a psychiatric drug. Um, the, the default reality is, in essence, one in which if you if you kind of do what is baked in, you will not do well. And so in that context, people are very reasonably asking for additional data. The problem with the additional data is it's incredibly um, heterogeneous as far as its quality. You know, you can go online and you can say something is wrong and I want to do something about it, which is an amazing thing. And I hate that certain doctors will say, oh, you're wasting your time. Don't do that. No, it is a human and a reasonable thing to ask and say, I'm looking at my parents. They're developing Alzheimer's disease. I don't want that. What can I do? And if you kind of go to your conventional medical websites, it'll say, oh, not much. Wait, when it happens, it happens. Or maybe you say, I don't want to experience depression if I can prevent that. Well, what do we know about that? Not a lot on the conventional websites. So you, you wind up on social media you wind up on Dr. Google and you try to find some solution to this issue. The solutions, again, are all the way, everything from uh, a 45-day detox program that costs $50,000 and involves coffee enemas and some sort of a, a crazy new uh, superfood with no basis and evidence to things that can actually be beneficial. And then conventional medicine comes in and says, hey, this whole thing is a ruckus. It's bad ignore that and come back to us. And so I think this is a baby bathwater kind of scenario, but the the main point that I wanted to address, I guess, is we need to have compassion for and empathy for the fact that in the modern day, 
the tools that the average person has available to be healthy are incredibly insufficient. And if you are a person who understands that, even in a small way, it is 100% expected that you should then look for other answers. And conventional medicine does not provide those solutions. So yes, you wind up in this soup where some good and some bad information is floating around. So that's that's the space that we have to play in. And I think it is much easier in some ways to say, I don't want to play. I don't want to play that game. I don't want to, I mean, yeah, very few academics want to do dances on TikTok, right? But there is some sort of a sweet spot in between, I think, where people like us can still play, can still participate, can still educate, can still distill down complex information in a way that people can reach or it can be uh, reached by people while maintaining the necessary depth to be able to speak to a higher level of comprehension about these topics. So I try to structure my time on both ends, right? I, I create hopefully engaging social media posts, but I also publish research in peer-reviewed journals. Like it, it has to be some sort of a combination of you actually knowing the material and being able to disseminate it. And that's, I'm saying that's for me. Some people are completely comfortable in one sphere or the other, and that's fantastic too. But I just don't think we should be discounting either of those spheres as somehow inferior because they're both necessary. Not a zero sum game. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to. Uh, so so thank you for that. It's very thoughtful discussion. This actually, but I I wanted to move on and just, you know, when I hear you speak, I always it's always very thoughtful. Um, and and you do strike me as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about what's going on, and um, as well as doing all the other stuff. And um, I, I I see your work as being kind of pushing up against the the boundaries of of the work that we're currently doing. And I've heard you speak on psychedelics and on the brain and immunoregulation and stuff. And where do you think we're going in the future? That's going to be the most powerful impact that we're going to see that's that's different from where we are at the moment yeah so yes um i have been on stages speaking about psychedelics which i guess is probably seen as the most fringe thing that i participate in maybe by some um despite the fact that at this point psychedelic research has been published in basically every top tier medical journal on earth and you know these studies again are are significant as it relates to maybe not the population size, but are significant as it relates to the effect size in a, in a realm in which, in this case, psychiatry, the standard of care is just not that great. But yeah. what do I see happening next? I mean, there's there's playing out probabilities, and then there's playing out kind of what I hope to see and some of the trends that I really do enjoy um, that I'm participating in. I don't necessarily see, for at least the near future, a deviation from the scenario that we're in now, which is people continuing to get sicker with chronic preventable diseases um, and dying earlier uh, unnecessarily. And I don't mean to say that in a way that is, you know, obviously it's disheartening, but just look at the trajectories. I, I like you, go to these events, these wonderful conferences that bring together leaders from around the world talking about how diet and exercise and individual lab testing and supplementation and other therapeutics can be leveraged to 
basically save people's lives. And we hear these stories, right? We hear these testimonials from the patients there. We hear the stories from the clinicians who have worked with patients and who have changed dramatically their trajectory of life. That is true. It's not enough. And what I mean by that is if you take a moment and step back and look at trends in chronic preventable diseases, not necessarily deaths due to, but people who are experiencing, I think that's important. People, less people die of heart disease, but more people have coronary artery disease. It doesn't necessarily change the fact that people are still getting sicker. And all of our therapeutics for prolonging life in the world are not all that interesting to me if quality of life is garbage. And that's still kind of the way that people tend to look at health optimization. It's keep people alive longer. Look, we've probably both experienced what it looks like when you're around people who are being kept alive longer with low quality of life. That shouldn't be our primary outcome of interest. So all of that is to say, I'm not super optimistic about what happens in the immediate future. I think that people change behavior when pain occurs to a point where it is less painful to do the thing that is better in this case. And right now, when I go out into the world and I look at how people interact with their environment, the things they do, the things they eat, the way that they participate in the world, it is far easier and at a moment-to-moment -moment basis, far less painful to, in essence, do what makes us sick, right? When ultra-processed food, as we said, is the kind of the default, meaning that the majority of American calories come from ultra-processed food, that 70-plus percent of food in the grocery store has added sugar, that exercise is not even considered a kind of a cornerstone of a person's day for the average person where a third of people are getting poor sleep, where we spend 11 plus hours of our day interacting with screens, four hours watching TV, two plus hours on our phones, on social media. That is not a recipe for a good product. And all this doom and gloom is to say that if you're listening to this right now, there's an amazing opportunity to do something different. Uh, as much as I'm a huge proponent of personalized, individualized interventions, what benefits the majority of people right now is starting to take steps to do the basics and to break out of this cycle of incredibly poor health interventions that you're doing to yourself each day. Um, so with that laid down, with kind of that, that'll be the the bottom track, then we'll we'll try to to riff on that. I think what happens next is not good. I do see some amazing signals for longer term. Uh, opportunity that is represented by pockets of amazing things happening now. Uh, where do I see those things happening? Well, there's community that's being built around things other than, you know, eating junk food and being on our screens all the time. Um, there's a, a group that I know working out of Toronto that is now expanding around the United States that brings people together for alcohol-free kind of uh, sauna, cold plunge, mindfulness, meditation, sound bath, all that stuff. Why is that important? It's because still right now, even though social interaction is well understood to be one of the key aspects of what drives our health, even though the Surgeon General says loneliness is one of the biggest problems that we face right now in the United States, most of our social interaction, the easiness of it is tends to be built around things like drinking alcohol, which is a known neurotoxin and long-term increases risk of disease. So are there ways in which we can still capitalize on human social capital uh, or connection that don't necessitate our basically taking in something toxic potentially? So this group is one of the examples of doing that. I think there's amazing work being done in being able to get biofeedback from our health. Uh, 
I, I know the levels team very well. They're one of the groups that are doing an amazing job of this in that they're showing people what happens to their blood sugar when they eat something unhealthy or healthy or exercise or get sleep or mindfulness. And one of the biggest issues right now is that for the average person, the connection between the food that they eat and their health outcomes is too distant as far as the cause and effect or as far as the actual consumption of something and the effect, I should say. So if you eat a bag of potato chips right now, you won't necessarily feel five minutes later something that dramatically tells you that impacted my health negatively. This is the window in which every single processed food manufacturer is able to hide. Well, this cereal is part of a complete breakfast. What what nonsense is that? And oh, well, you can eat this bowl of cereal and you didn't die, right, five minutes later. So it can't be that problematic, even though consistently we know that when you eat unhealthy foods, ultra-processed foods, you will, on average, die earlier, and you'll have more diseases, and you'll have worse mood. So biofeedback is one way in which we can start to see in real time the effects of the choices that we're making in our environment. And I think that you know there's still a lot to be learned about blood sugar and whether ups and downs correlate with things like mood. But what I would love to see is for people to make the connection between the things they do in a given day and how it affects their brain. Because I think that's, this is where I get the most excited about things like psychedelics and other things and kind of getting to the kind of core of my my thing, my shtick, whatever, is that the more our brains become stuck, and I mean that in this case, in a psychological and biochemical sense, the more they become embedded in these patterns of unhealthy thinking, uh, which is a reflection of uh, our neurons being wired together in certain ways, neurotransmitters being released and neurotransmitter receptors being uh, present or not, things like long-term potentiation, which is a reflection of receptors like the AMPA uh, receptor. And basically the, the point I'm making is the more that our brains become embedded in patterns of unhealthy thinking, the harder it is to get out of that. But the more opportunity we have to to move things back to a place of clarity. And when a person, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this a million times, but when a person gets that sense of clarity of, oh my gosh, what I'm doing to my body and to my brain is leading to these problems. And when I do something new, get good sleep, exercise, don't eat as much added sugar, I can see the correlation. That is the opportunity for success. These are, these are portals to becoming unstuck. The reason psychedelics are interesting to me is because generally speaking, a portal to becoming unstuck is subtle. So it may be that you cut out added sugar, you stop drinking the soda, and maybe after a few weeks, you notice you're down a few pounds, or maybe you notice your energy levels aren't crashing at the end of the day, or maybe you notice you're getting better sleep. These are subtle things. If somebody's coaching you and saying, hey, how are you feeling? Tell me about your sleep. You say, oh, it's a little better. Well, maybe it's about that soda. And they say, oh my gosh, that's interesting. Maybe it is the soda. But with a psychedelic, uh, it gives you a real-time understanding that so much of what we think is true and important doesn't matter. And so much of what is true is stuff that we've been ignoring. And that's kind of from my reading of the research on the application of psychedelics to people with conditions like end-of-life depression uh, PTSD, which in this case, MDMA is sometimes classified as psychedelic, but let's use it in this case. Um, there's an immediate knowledge. There's an immediate portal 
there's an immediate connection between the feeling, the knowledge of that truth, and not just the cognitive state of understanding. So last thing I'm just going to say on this front, um, I think what is lacking in, in health in general is the felt knowledge of something being important. I have told so many people till I'm blue in the face that exercise matters, that they should stop eating extra sugar and, you know, whatever it is, add some fiber, omega-3s, whatever else. Intellectually, you and I can understand this. We've read the studies. You can talk about the effects of omega-3s on neuroplasticity. We can talk about pro-resolving mediators and how that's a good thing for our immune health and how immune health then relates to autoimmunity, uh, relates to allergies, inflammation. But until a person experiences the feeling associated with that, it doesn't really matter because for most people, they're not basing their decisions on what matters within PubMed studies, right? So I'm excited about ways to create those portals. That can be through fun little educational clips. That can be through biofeedback. Uh, that can be through people reaching a state of pain in their lives where they are so sick of and fed up with being unhealthy unnecessarily that they start to on their own investigate and test these things, which is amazing. And psychedelics are just one of those options. So that was a lot. I don't know if that's exactly what you were looking for, but, no, no, but um, I, I love the idea of portals. I love the idea of, yeah, it's heart and mind, you know, how do we, how do we reach people's hearts? Because that's where we're going to see change. So just um, being cognizant of time, there is a question I do want to ask, which we can kind of start tying things up. But, you know, I'm sure everyone who's listening to you is thinking, wow, I could, I could sit and listen to you for a very long time and, you know, so much to learn. But, you know, what would be the advice that you would yeah. give someone who's starting out? So someone, you, you're standing on a stage, you've got a whole lot of people listening to you speak and they're sitting there and they either just, coming into the world of kind of functional integrative, mm -hmm. they trying to decide what to study and they listening to you and feeling, wow, you know, like how, how did you get to be, um, how did you get to be in a place where you can challenge things and explore new things and do great research? Like what would be your advice that you would give to someone who's starting out? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it, it differs depending on whether you're trying to make this your career or if you're just trying to personally make health changes. I think those are different scenarios. Let's go with the career one. That's mm -hmm. kind of more that I was thinking about. Right. Well, I mean, I think there, there is one correlate to both, which is if you're looking at this for a long-term anything in your life, whether it's you want to make your personal health changes or you want this to be your career, you have to find a way to make you yourself care about it long-term. I think something that many people experience is kind of the going from one thing to the next, and that can be challenging, necessary sometimes because you need to learn about yourself. Um, you know, I, I, kind of the the way that I, because I've, I've done, I guess, a, a number of different things to get to where I am now. I think there's, in order to, to really differentiate yourself and to have a stake in the ground, um, I think one goal is to be in the 99th or higher percentile as far as your ability to know and I, ideally to be able to talk about one thing. Now, ideally that one thing is something that people care about, right? So you could be the the world expert in the, you know, the distance between the grains on the wooden tabletop. No one cares about that. It's great that you know that, but it's not super helpful. 
um, it doesn't take that much. It just means that you know more than 99 random people about something. And to that end, I would say, pick a couple of things and just start learning about them. I think that the skill sets that are perhaps most relevant to somebody going into this now different, perhaps if you say you want to do a purely academic track, or if you want to do a purely clinical track, but if you're looking at creating skills that will generalize across categories, I think it is being able to read and synthesize complex data and being able to speak and write about that data. Um, one of the tips that I had a few years ago from one of my friends is to get on uh, a video each day, Zoom or photo booth or phone or whatever, not live, don't share this with anybody, just record yourself talking about a topic. And what you'll find almost immediately is how awkward it is. And that you feel like you don't know about the topic, you don't like your voice, you feel like you are having crazy pauses. Uh, let's be honest about something. AI is a real threat to many people's positions, but until they basically take somebody's persona and map it onto a video, people want to hear from people. And I think that's really important. Um, and so getting into the practice of being able to communicate science and communicate ideas is really, really key. Because if you can do that, and again, try to find a couple of things that you can know more than 99% of people, this, this doesn't mean you are the world's expert in the topic. I want to be clear on that. Like if you take a hundred people and ask them about what are the microbes found in the human GI tract, uh, almost a hundred people will say, uh, bacteria, right? So if you go and you read up on this for an hour, you will know more than 99 people find some of those areas and just start practicing and learning stuff. Ideally things that you care about, ideally things that are relevant to people. It doesn't mean that that's what you're going to stake your platform on at all, but it's a really excellent exercise in seeing what it means to be able to convey a complex topic in a way that gives people value and allows you to go through the kind of the, the steps of what it takes to become quote expert in that topic. So I'd say those are kind of like the, the generalizable skill sets that I see uh, most important for people who are coming into that space. I do think the world of healthcare is rapidly changing. And the benefit or how enjoyable it would be to be an MD today, and I'll speak to what I know because I'm, I'm not an ND, I'm not a chiropractor um, or a PhD, uh, it's, it's not as good as it used to be is I think kind of what I'm hearing from most people. I have friends who uh, are getting less government funding for Medicare and Medicaid patients. I have friends who are dealing with terrible bureaucracy within hospital systems doesn't mean it isn't still good. And I think it's still really good for people who are specialists, um, orthopedic surgeons, cardiologists, um, for generalists, which means seven years of education after uh, college or more. Um, it's not as good as it used to be. Doesn't mean it still isn't great for certain people, but I do think there is an increasing desire to diversify how you bring in patients and how you participate in the world. So um, the last little bit of advice I would say here, which maybe is something people already said, is there is there is no system that I've been part of where the uh, incentive is really to look out for your long-term wellness. Um, so that's really has to be something that you think of on the front end. People will get you to work. People will get you to say things. People will get you to do things that benefit whatever group you're working with. And so 
as quickly as possible, understand the things that you would not want to do or feel comfortable doing. So they don't find yourself in a position where you feel like you've been taken advantage of because it's just kind of, it is what it is. Um, everyone's self-incentivized and there are a lot of groups out there that are just kind of in a, a, a quick rush to sensationalize a topic and make a buck. And it's just not worth it to uh, participate in that. Well, I think that's a, a, a great last sentence that isn't something that anyone has said on this podcast so far, but I think incredibly relevant, especially in the, the times that we're going through where it's so easy to, to find a place and, and the way what we say and what we do gets spread so easily. So thank you for that. Um, Dr. Austin Pilmeter, it has been very thoughtful as I knew it would be and um, speaking with you and learning about your experience of the field, how you got here, how you engage with it. And I have absolutely no doubt that there'll be many who will find it equally engaging. So thank you very much for, for joining me today. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com backslash podcasts.